Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to talk today about a deliverer's family. We're going to see some lessons from a passage of Scripture that I would guess anything that you have never heard preached on in your life. And you probably never will again. But you come to the right place today because you're going to hear it. This is one of those passages when you read through the Bible in a year, you come across and you go, what was that? And it's kind of like a speed bump and you go on by it. Uh, You're going to see the, the truths that are there. Holy Spirit, we love you and we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We need our minds transformed. We need to be taught and grounded in the Word of God. We need to love the Word of God. Would you put that love in us? Would you open our spiritual ears so that we can hear and our hearts so we respond? Would you grace me, Lord, to let you speak so we can hear you speak to us through your Word? We ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the key ingredients for true discipleship is learning how to be part of a family, isn't it? It's not the easiest part, but it's an important part. Whether that be our natural family or the family of God, learning to live in a committed way, that's the key. Living with other people in a committed way, in other words, being stuck in a relationship where you are, you must work it out is a tremendous challenge for all of us. Nothing confronts our character so much as living with other people. You can say amen if you want to. Yeah, just don't turn toward anyone when you say it. (laughs) Our weaknesses are exposed, our selfishness confronted, and our love is tested. But as ironic as it may sound, these are some of the things that cause us to mature as disciples of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 27, 17 captures this idea when it says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Say that with me. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Say it again. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Let me just stop a minute and illustrate that. Uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, I, 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 ha- I was out in the garage and I have a, a stump there and I have this wood and all because I have a wood stove and that's kind of how I like to heat and, and I've got a little hand axe and I had, by, before I got the stump I would hit it on the floor quite a lot and that really did a number on the edge and, and I noticed how dull this thing was, I could hardly get it to cut the kindling and so I went and got a, a file out of my out of my tools and I and I ground away with that file on the edge of that axe. I filed one side, filed another. Then I looked at it and it was just a jagged. I, then I filed the whole edge off on the front and then I filed it down again to get a decent edge. That's the image that that proverb has in mind. Iron sharpens iron. Filing that grinding against it's 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 abrasive friction. Iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. That friction, that rubbing, that conflict, as it were, that comes between people is a way that sharpens. And you'll notice when it's sharpened, it's fit for service. It actually made the axe, as a sharp axe, 
is a far better tool, a safer tool, than is a dull one. So we have iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's the friction that takes place between people that fits us for service. At least it does in people who submit to the Lord and seek his help. The others get bitter. So no, the friction between people does not make everybody better. But if a person turns to the Lord and calls on the Lord for help, God uses it to make us stronger, wiser, more patient, loving people. It's, it's so, so essential. Um, those who don't simply get mean. These learn to forgive, repent, pray, wait, love, serve, submit, and lead. All of that's part of relationships. Those who run away from this process tend to remain immature and never realize their full potential for ministry. Today we are going to learn some valuable lessons about family by observing a very painful moment in the marriage of Moses and Zephorah. Yet it teaches lessons that both men and women need to hear because some of God's attitudes about family are clearly revealed here. And after all, family is God's idea. He's the one who calls us into family. Starting at verse 18, chapter 4. We are picking up right after Moses has been at Mount Sinai. The, the Lord has talked to him from the burning bush and given him his assignment. And then this takes place. He goes back to Jethro's camp and has this conversation. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they're still alive. Been gone 40 years, wonder if my family's alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. I think that piece of information is given us because he must have shared that with Jethro, trying to comfort him that if he took his, his, Jethro's daughter and grandchildren back to Egypt, they wouldn't all be killed upon entering the land. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. So they set out with simply one donkey. If I'm taking the text literally, it's one donkey. He's got Zephora sitting on it with the two boys. Probably they ran alongside and then most of the time. And then he's walking along with the staff of God. And they head out and they make it as far as at least one night, one day journey. Probably about 30 miles out. We have some instructions, verse 21 through 23, the Lord gives them, I'm going to skip, and down to verse 24. There we go. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and did what? Sought to kill him. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, I, I just can imagine everybody on their first trip through the Bible. Wait a minute, did I read that? The Lord, my, the Lord met him, and mine says, sought to put him to death. Whoa. And then Zephora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. That would be God let Moses alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Like I said, you've never heard this preached on before. 
here's what I think is going on. They have traveled out probably about, I would guess, about 30 miles, 25 miles the first day, and they've come to the lodging place, the campsite. And I don't know what hit him, but something, probably a disease, and he is showing signs of dying there in camp the first night. You can imagine Zephora, how she feels, being 30 miles out somewhere with a donkey and two boys, and her husband's dying. This is a terrifying moment, for one thing. And how does Moses know it's the Lord? Obviously, God isn't sitting there throwing lightning bolts at Moses trying to kill him. It's not that kind of thing like, where is he? Right behind that rock. Look, just a minute. He's going to come out. I missed him. It's, It's not that kind of thing. When it says he tried to slay him, he, if he really wanted to slay him, he's a dead man instantly, all right? That, so there's no issues there. But whatever's going on, he, I think he has given him a disease. And it's a disease unto death. And Moses goes in prayer and says, what's this? And the Lord says, this is from me. I'm going to kill you. Now, that's pretty strange, isn't it? I mean, we've just gone through all 80 years of preparation and been sent from Mount Sinai to go to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel. And then suddenly, one night out, he's trying to kill him. What an odd situation. Well, what's the reason? And I think the reason is evident by Zephora's reaction. She goes and circumcises one of the boys. And angrily deposits that at probably the feet of the body of Moses lying on the ground. And says angrily, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. First of all, wouldn't you agree that how we treat our family obviously matters to God? Because that's what this is about. God is saying basically... I'll not have a man lead my children who won't care for his own. Believe it or not, Moses, the great deliverer of Israel, has not seen that his own child is taken care of spiritually. This is really quite a serious matter. Today, it's hard for us to comprehend culturally, well, what's the big deal? He didn't circumcise his son. Let me show you what a big deal it is and how significant it was. Drop back to Genesis chapter 17. Verse 10. This is the Lord making a covenant with Abraham. And chapter 17, verse 10 says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be in the sign of the covenant, it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then he goes on to say, Every servant who's born in your house wants to be circumcised, not just your own physical descendants. And then he says in verse 14, the key. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off, separated, uh, disinherited from his people, and he has broken my covenant. 
In other words, my guess is it's Gershom the older. Your son is not part of the blessings of Abraham. He is not included in the people of Israel. Now, what difference does that make? And why is it of such urgency to God that he would strike the father nearly dead on the way to Israel? I mean, to, the way to Egypt. I'll tell you why I think. And this is my guess. But we're on our way to Egypt, and there's going to be something called the night of Passover. You remember what happened on Passover night? What? The angel of death swept through the land, and all the firstborn children, all the firstborn sons, who were not covered, died. Now, I don't know, but I think Gershom, being uncircumcised and outside the covenant of Israel on that night, Gershom would have died. And the Lord says, oh, no, you don't. You are not going to expose your children to this. I'll take you first, mister. God cares about how we treat our children. He watches to see how we treat the weakest member. A person cannot be a deliverer, a minister, a servant of God who looks at other needs and ignores their own family. God won't tolerate it. How strongly he feels is revealed right here. Very, very strongly. He watches to see how we treat the weakest in our family. He watches to see if we use our authority to serve our family or abuse them. He watches to see if we faithfully carry out the responsibilities he's entrusted to us. If we love our families enough to do what's best. If we have the courage to do what's right. Let me show you this very principle in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul describes the principle that's at work here. And if you get to any one of the T's in the New Testament, Timothy, Thessalonians, or Titus, they're all together. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is talking about a leader in the New Testament church. If someone is going to be a leader, then this is a quality that has to be in their life. He says, verse 4, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? Let me read that last verse again. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? There's a responsibility. A person, their character and their spiritual depth is shown by how they treat, first of all, their family. And then, the person who treats their own family, their own immediate church, as it were, properly, then that person is someone who can take care of the family of God. But God doesn't want anybody taking care of his family that doesn't properly take care of their own. Second point, a father has the primary responsibility for the spiritual development of the children. Would you notice who it is who's on the ground sick? Which one? It's 
Moses. It's the father. Now, as you look at this account, you can kind of tell whose, whose problem it is in terms of who doesn't like circumcision. Somebody's made a decision not to circumcise this child. And may I point out, for God to, to bring him to a point where he's going to strike Moses dead, this isn't a new subject. God never comes along and sort of nearly strikes you dead and says, by the way, I wanted to teach you something. If it's come to this kind of discipline, there has been some sort of disregarding of the Lord for a long time. And you can tell by the relationship between husband and wife here, there's a real friction on this subject. Her husband's dying, and she does it even then with a bad attitude. Take your dumb... By the way, if you don't know what circumcision is, look it up at home. You're not hearing about it here. <laughs> so, I want you to notice something. In God's mind... And this is not politically correct, and I'm sorry, I guess. But I'm going to just tell you, God is God, and God doesn't change. And God has certain opinions about things, and since he's God, I figure it matters. And you'll notice who he thinks is responsible for this problem. I believe Zephora, who is a Midianite, is repulsed, disgusted at the thought of this sort of surgery on one of her babies. And she has not tolerated it. You might argue that Moses didn't know much about it. He was raised as an Egyptian. But I'm sure he was circumcised himself by his parents at eight days. And I'm sure there, they, he must know or we wouldn't be where we are. Nearly dead of judgment from the Lord. So there's a rebellion here. Somebody has compromised something they understood. I want you to see something, and there's just a principle here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a very famous passage, and someone pointed it out to me. I can't even remember when, but I've believed it ever since, and it, it was before I was married. Deuteronomy 6 passage starts with what's called in verse 4 with a famous Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Chod. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then it goes to this. The Lord really speaking to the fathers of the nation, he says, with these words, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and your daughters, of course. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Would you notice? You're to talk and teach your children about the things of God all the time. In God's thinking, the primary responsibility for the spiritual development of the children is on the father's shoulders. I'll speak to, I'll speak to single moms in just one moment. It is not, in God's mind, primarily the responsibility of the mother. Of course she nurtures the children. Of course she teaches them faith. Of course she models it. Big time. I'm just saying, who does God hold responsible for it? Who does God see is first in line? I understood this 
was my responsibility. And I thought, how do I do this as a young father? And for me, it came down to this. I would do bedtime stories every night that I was home. That was my commitment. Every night that I was home, I would do bedtime stories, have, have a, a time with each, with each child. Now, I want you to know that like most fathers in this room, I would come home tired, grumpy, with a headache, didn't feel like doing anything but going and sitting and vegging somewhere. I didn't want to say in front of the TV. <laughs> but I didn't feel like doing it. Nine times out of ten, I didn't want to in the natural. But I had this conviction, the one I'm teaching you today. I understood that as faithful and wonderful as my wife was, and yes, she would pick it up if I, if I didn't do it, but that in God's opinion, it was my responsibility, first of all, to do this. And so I'd go in there. And we'd, we'd do this. We'd always start with prayer. We might kneel down. Kids don't like to kneel any better than we do. But we'd come on now, and we'd kneel down. We'd say our prayers, you first, and then I will. No, Daddy, you first. Okay. And then I taught them certain memory things. We'd sometimes recite the Lord's Prayer in the 23rd Psalm and various things. Psalm 8. And then we'd have a Bible story. And the Bible would be the one that's appropriate for the child's age. And we'd, we'd, we went on up through one, I, one thing I loved was the picture Bible. It's like a comic book Bible. But it's got good theology. It's a good, solid Bible. And we'd read through all the read a chapter there. And then we'd read whatever we wanted. Now, my, my daughters always stayed awake. My son did not. My son was like, hey, come on, come on, come on. Come on, Andrew, just, just stay with me. He'd just go out on me. So with my daughters, I, could, I took them through all sorts of great literature. That we, we, we read, you name it, Heidi and Swiss Family Robinson and Black Beauty. And just, we, I bet they went through the Chronicles of Narnia three times apiece. Uh, we went through the a Little House on the Prairie series several times with each one. I mean, they, both my daughters could skin a pig or, 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 or churn butter. And you know, with the way power goes out around here, you never know when you need to know something like that. So they, they got just read all sorts of literature. And, and that was my time with my children every night. Now with Andrew, I had to get these sports books. You know, these various Christian athlete testimonies. We, we read, read those and I'd and, uh, do my best to keep him with me because he'd keep going to sleep. But it was my time to invest in my children. And I did it for this reason I'm telling you. Because I was to teach them their faith. And you know what happens with those times? People talk about having quality time rather than quantity time. I have discovered that the quality time happens whenever the child decides it will happen. And you never know. And you have to have quantity time so you're there when that spark hits. You don't determine when it'll hit. They determine when it'll hit. And so all of a sudden we're lying there, you know, having this little time. And suddenly one of the children will say something like this. Daddy? Yes, sweetheart. Will I die? Why do you ask that? Will I die, Daddy? Yes, you will. 
just like me. That's why we have Jesus, and all of a sudden we're into a conversation. And the child is now engaging the fact that they're mortal and going to have to deal with that. They decide those moments. That's why you talk about them on the way. You know, while you're, you, it's when the child decides, the child will open up the conversation. A single mom assumes this role, and God gives her the mantle for this. How do I know? I grew up with a single mother. I had no father. I know exactly how this works. And indeed it works. And if you're a single mom today, don't you dare think that unless you have a mother and a father and a perfect family, your children are doomed. That's absolute fear from the devil. The Lord gives extra grace. He comes in in a strong measure. He says he's the husband of the, of the widow. He's the father of the fatherless. And so he actually notices the situation and comes in with an extra measure of grace. I know it to be a fact. He was my heavenly father, still is, at a very profound level. Very profound level. My mother had to play a role that was a bit different than my nature. She had to become something of a father. One year I gave her a Father's Day card. It hurt, and it hurt her feelings. I said, well, you're more my father than my mother, I think, you know. I wouldn't say that dumb thing now, though she's here. But I did then. So I want you to understand something. You mustn't become fearful and say, unless we have this ideal family, it won't work. I'm just telling you that where there's a father, even if there's a divorce, that mantle's on your shoulders. That yoke is yours, like it or not. And you should like it. It's one of your highest callings. The father should think of himself as the pastor of his family. He should be seeking God's will and leading. The more you follow God, the more authority you have. I'm going to tell you a secret. There's a thing called moral authority. That's the kind of authority that people recognize in you and follow because they intuitively sense you're the leader. And that comes from the person who makes decisions based on real values. Whoever it is who is leading not out of selfish ambition, not because they're the big bully, but because they're doing what's right. That person has moral authority and that person will lead the family one way or another, male or female, young or old. Some of you are the youngest in your family, yet everyone turns to you for authority, don't they? Because you're the Christian, you're the one praying, you're the one who has values and the whole family knows it and they look to you. Don't they? It works like that. Many men have given up their moral authority by being shallow spiritually and passing those responsibilities to their wife. And then the only way they can have authority in their family is by intimidating through threats of violence or loudness, aggressiveness. Or by manipulation. They literally have to kind of bully everyone around because they have no intrinsic moral authority because they're not a spiritual man. You give away the store. You give away your authority. You give away your anointing when you choose not to grow and to be a man on your knees. But if you choose to be a man of prayer, 
who seeks, who's, who's done just what we talked about earlier, made Jesus Lord of your life. It doesn't matter about what I want. It doesn't matter what's best for me. It's what's best for my family. It's what the Lord is putting on our hearts to do. When you lead from that position, everybody's happy to follow you and grateful to have you. Keep arguing about who's, who's supposed to lead the family. It isn't an argument when it's healthy. Today, abuse of fatherly authority has produced a rebellion against all authority, and that produces an abuse of its own. America right now is so burned, so troubled by ungodly leadership, not only at physical fathers, though it starts there, but with political leaders, church leaders, People who have a fatherly role in our lives, failing their fatherly, not seeking the Lord in prayer, not seeking to do what's right for us, but abusing it and bullying us and exploiting us with their power. So what you have now in America is an attitude, nobody's going to lead me, and there's this cynicism that won't allow anyone to lead. I watch situations where you have a marriage where a husband really is a godly man. He is seeking the Lord. He's trying to do the best, but even there, his wife will not follow him out of just sheer fear. And there's a form of abuse in that. It's a matter of, of prayer. You don't follow anybody. You don't follow people because they have the title. But actually, I'm going to tell you something. My wife made me lead I didn't want to. We, we really had arguments like this. What do you think we should do, dear? Well, you're, 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 the, you're, you're the husband. You, you, you lead us. Well, no, no, you, you decide this. I don't know what to do. No, no, you're the husband. You go ahead. And then I said, well, if I'm the boss, then I'm commanding you to lead. <laughs> I... I'm not joking. I said that. <laughs> I've got a witness in the front row. And she literally, I guess you'd call it rebellious, but she wouldn't. She insisted on and prayed for it. And she said, I'll pray for you. I'll stand with you. I'll help you. But she would not usurp that role. She pushed me. I'm saying, really, it isn't a matter of women letting a husband lead. You literally have to help them. Encourage them, pray for them, assist them. You make them a leader. It's a great gift and a great blessing. And if you have a godly man who's seeking the Lord, it's so healing and strengthening for him. And the whole family begins to come into a health. Thirdly, verse 25, back in Exodus. I'm not going to read it. It's read it enough. Would you notice that the husband and wife need to be in agreement about how to raise the children? With Sephora's response, with her husband lying, dying on the ground, she angrily circumcises her son and expresses her dissatisfaction, calls him a husband of blood to her. Husband and wife need to be in agreement about how to raise children. If they aren't, the children suffer. Spiritual confusion allows children to escape from healthy discipline. When mom and dad disagree 
on spiritual values and on how to raise children. The children are very smart. They're all human beings and they figure it out and they play one against the other. They figure out which parent will allow them to do whatever they want and they'll ask them first and they'll sneak around and the whole game goes on, don't they? Didn't you? <laughs> what has to happen is there has to, God's ways are often out of step with the culture. Wouldn't you agree circumcision is certainly out of step with the culture in that time? Here is Zephora, a Midianite, and she is disgusted at the thought of this surgery on one of her children. It's a, it's a disgusting, silly idea to her. She's revolted by it, and only with the death, near death of her husband is she willing to have this done. Aren't God's ways still out of step with the culture? Doesn't his value system for our families, for raising our children, aren't they still considered foolish or disgusting or out of step with the times? Aren't they? God's ways are always awkward and culturally out of step. It requires prayer and study between husband and wife to come into agreement. You have to work at it. I encourage premarital counseling. If you haven't been married, to literally deal with it in, pre-counseling, in pre-marriage counseling. So if you can have that, that's wonderful. Whether or not you've had it, we need to read and discuss together until we come to a genuine agreement. Not just young parents. I would say grandparents, anyone that has influence. Aunts and uncles. You need to think it through. For us, in route, Mary got a copy of a book called Dare to Discipline by James Dobson. It was this book by a person you'd never heard of at the time. And she read it and said, this is good. You've got to read this. So I read half of it. I'm a male. <laughs> Me and Andrew. <laughs> but I got through half of it, and I, and I picked up several key points. And we talked about it, and we came into agreement about when you discipline, how you discipline, who does the discipline. We talked about all those matters. And so when the children would try to come and play one against the other, say, Daddy, can I do this? I said, what'd your mother say? Well, she said this. Then it's that. And I would stand behind her, and she would stand behind me, and it didn't take long to find out that it didn't work to play one against the other, unless you were very good at it. <laughs> Won't say it never happened. <laughs> Let me speak about divorce and custody situations, because again, I've been talking about... Uh, a family where you have a husband and a wife and you have two Christians and you have somebody where, where both parties are trying to do the right thing. What about a divorce custody or a believer with an unbeliever? What, what happens in that situation? Again, do not despair. Do not think that you, because I don't have the ideal family, this, my children are going to be ruled. It's not true at all. God is able to overrule the effects of a dysfunctional parent. Remember what I said about moral authority? The person who makes the decisions, the person who is carrying out biblical values, forgiving, loving, being patient, praying, seeking to do that which is right, has a, there's a gravity to them. And yes, children are go through rebellious seasons, and yes, they test their limits. But life's hard. 
And people are ugly and the society is difficult to live in. And sooner or later, those forces, those children look and they say, where is something I can build my life on? And even if they go into a rebellious season, they come home because they, they think, I know who's the prayer. I know who's got values. And if it's mom, then that's the one they come home and they listen to. And if it's dad, or if it's both ideal, but whoever it is. So you live your life out. You let your light shine. You do your part of it and trust the Holy Spirit to bear witness in that child's heart. It's like a, when you go fishing, you know, you, the, 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 the hook sets and then the line often spins out the other way. Zzz, the drag runs, you know, and the fish is actually going away from the boat. But you just keep tension on the line. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You just keep tension on the line and zzz, and they're jumping and they're thrashing and diving to the bottom. And, zzz, and you just keep on grinding. You just keep on pulling. You just keep on pulling. And after a while, that fish begins to tire and is just drawn back by the, by the draw. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our children's hearts. You keep praying. You keep living out your witness. You keep letting your light shine to them. You just do what you can do. And you think, this is so inadequate. I haven't been a perfect parent. Nobody's a perfect parent. There isn't a person in the room that doesn't have deep regrets over how they, how they parented their children. Or how, how they were a husband or wife to their partner. We've all failed. That's sin. That's Adam. But the Holy Spirit overrules that. If he didn't, the whole thing would be down the, down the sink. He really does overrule it. Let me tell you this. Um, years ago, we were teaching at the, I was teaching at the Bible college, and one of my children had some real trouble. And I, I went to the president, and uh, he was a friend and someone I respected, and I said, uh, you know, given what Timothy says about managing your household well, I said, I think maybe I should resign. I'm having some trouble at home. And he said this to me. He said, Steve, managing your household well means managing your household well. It means you're, you're managing. You're dealing with it. It doesn't mean you have a perfect home. And he said, every one of my children has gone through a dark valley of the soul. Every one of them. He had three. And he said, but today, every one of my children is serving the Lord. Boy, that was life to me. I just went, oh, thank you. Because I was so afraid. It was fear-driven. I didn't realize the power of the Holy Spirit to have that fish on, to just keep drawing the hearts, to keep working with the thing. I thought if I made a mistake, if I blew it, if I was a poor father, which I felt I was, that somehow I would have absolutely spoiled my children's life. We think I've got to be a perfect father, a perfect mother will produce perfect children. Nonsense. First of all, there's never going to be these two. And every child comes in with an Adamic nature. Their own rebellion, their own needs to find God for themselves, their own need to discover their own sin. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. It's not a cute little formula. But the Holy Spirit overrules. He's powerful. He's powerful. And I have watched him do miracles in my children's lives that I will thank him for forever. Just amazing. Stuff I never planned. It wasn't like we got our act together. 
was God broke in and in his mercy reached my children. He'll reach yours. And he'll come into your marriage. So don't you dare think that because there's a divorce, because I have a, I have a believing partner and an unbelieving partner, somebody because things aren't out of order, that somehow my children are forsaken. They are not forsaken. Paul says that, a, that one believing parent sanctifies a household. Meaning the covenants, the, all the blessings of that new covenant are at work in your household. And that's my last point. Managing one's household well does not mean everything's going smoothly. And I just want to show you something I'll bet you never saw before. Turn with me to chapter 18 of Exodus. And I want to look at verses 1 through 5. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian... Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. Now the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So we've gone forward in time to the point where Israel has come out of slavery and is now out of, gone through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has been destroyed and they are on the other side uh, of all of this beginning to take the land or, or move toward the land of Israel. And then it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zephora, and what's that last phrase? After he had sent her away. My goodness, what? He took Moses' wife, Zephora, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses at the wilderness where he was camped, the Mount of God. I pointed out the friction with Moses and Zephorah. But do you know what happened, apparently? Moses took the two, a husband and wife, fought, I mean, yes, she circumcised her son. But her attitude and their relationship was such that he could not go together with her down to Israel, down to Egypt. And he took her back. To, to Jethro. And I'm sure he did it graciously. I, but he just said, we, we just aren't at a place where we can do this. I'll be back. And he took her back to her father. And he went on with his brother Aaron. And the deliverance and all of that went on. He could not have that kind of brokenness at home. You often think, if I don't have a perfect family... If things aren't in order, even if my marriage isn't right, can I be a servant of God? Can I be used of God? The answer is yes. He used Moses. He carried, carried him on and he delivered Israel from, from bondage with trouble in his marriage still. Managing your household well means managing your household well. It means that you don't Run away from challenges. You're passive and refuse to deal with it. it. It means you're not aggressive and angry, ruining things with your own temper. It means that you're pastoring 
seeking the Lord and doing the best you know to do to heal and to bring the Lord's values into your family. And if there's still trouble, there's still trouble. But you're managing your household well and it pleases the Lord. See, everyone has a will. You can't guarantee what someone will choose to do. But you can handle your side of the equation. And that's what the Lord looked at. He, Moses had done what he could do. Their relationship was not ready to be going through the stress of that and down there trying to deliver Israel. And so he took her back with the boys and left them with their father. And then, after all of the shooting was finished, they came back together. It was managing it well, but it wasn't an easy situation. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask a question, first of all, of the, of the men. I've pointed out today that in God's opinion, that the yoke is on your shoulders. That God views you, first of all, as the pastor of your household. Some of you are grandparents or great-grandparents, and you are literally the elder of a tribe. I would say your influence spiritually is greater than ever. Not less. This isn't, tr- this isn't something that once you're not a father, it's all over. No, it gets, it gets more pressure. But will you take that mantle on your shoulder to be the man of prayer? The man who seeks the will of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit for your household who counsels people out of the word of God and loves them and encourages patience and healing. Will you take that role? Father, uncle, grandfather, great-grandfather, will you take that role? And somebody today may just say, I'm, I'm choosing, I hear you. I hear you that God sees me as the pastor of my household. I take that responsibility And by his strength and his grace, I will do the best I'm able to do. Who needs to raise your hand and say, I'm choosing that yoke today. It's not being forced on me. I'm putting it on willingly and joyfully. A man of God, just hold your hands up. I'm going to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for each of these brothers. This is is intimidating. And yet, Lord, it's your power, your strength who will make this possible. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you place that mantle of authority on this beloved? Would you give, Lord, moral authority, not intimidation, not manipulation, but the authority that comes because Grandpa, Daddy, Uncle loves us, prays for us, and does what he does because he loves God and Jesus is his Lord. May that witness just come through. Lord, I think of husbands whose authority you establish by their commitment to you where a wife can trust him and let him lead and feel safe to let him and pray for him and encourage him because he will not abuse her but will lead their family with real integrity. Lord, anoint these husbands to lead their households. I pray in Jesus' name. Would you put your hands down? I have another question. This would be for men or for women.
But some of us have been really burned by authority to the point that we are unleadable. We won't quote, we don't, we just are so afraid that we've actually have godly husbands or spouses or leaders who we won't follow just out of sheer fear. We made some kind of bitter determination. Nobody's ever doing that to me again. And as a result, it's ruining our own marriages. It's ruining our own lives. It's, it's abusing other people who are trying to, to lead us properly. And today we would say, I trust you, Jesus, to protect me, to defend me, to watch over me, so that where you, you bear witness in my heart, I see there is someone earnestly and in integrity trying to lead me. I, I'm going to let them do that. They don't have to be perfect. It's not like they'll never make mistakes. But if I see them love you, if I see them following you, then I'm willing to help them do that and to cooperate and not fight them or belittle them. Who needs to make a statement like that? I think there are some who just need to say, would you lift your hands? I will follow. As though I see that godliness, as I see that heart and in a father, in a, in a husband, in a pastor, in a mother, I'll follow. Hold your hands up. Lord, I just pray for grace now for each, each beloved. This is a very difficult thing to do. And ultimately, we're saying we put our hand in yours. We trust you, Jesus. Trust you to carry us through. That you'll defend us. You won't let people abuse us, that you'll step in and guard us and keep us safe. But Lord, now we give, ask for humility, faith, to actually help a husband lead, to encourage a father, to bless a mother, to help a teacher or a pastor. We ask for grace, Lord, to follow as we follow you, trusting you all the time to defend us and give us discernment. If it's time ever to step back, you'll show us. But till then, we'll walk with you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. If that's your prayer, would you say amen? Lord, we thank you so much for being the head of our homes, the head of our lives, whether we be single or married. You're the head. And we just call you afresh, Lord. Thank you for putting us in families and teaching us to love one another as you love us. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.